This is Play by Playcast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play by play guys. For play by play guys, by I'm told, a play by play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now, here's the host of Play by Playcast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay. Here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. And Paradis puts the defense. Head fakes and scores! He's got the left hand down. Renier goes to it, sends it across O'Reilly, scores! Cal O'Reilly, a power play goal. Korobov, Yanni Gord, shooting, scores! Comets emerge. Freezing, dancing away from Olsen. Shoots and scores! Episode 71 of Play by Playcast. Thanks as always for clicking subscribe and or download. Joining us here again on a Friday morning. My name, of course, is Joel Godet. This is Play by Playcast. It is the podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters. Hosted by a play by play broadcaster. Hey, if you didn't get a chance to catch our episode yet from last week, please do go check it out. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, Jay Billis sat down with us and gave us the whole kind of play-by-play perspective from the color analyst's chair. And it's uh, something unique we've done on the pod and just kind of an interesting look into what we do, uh, how to make your analysts better, how analysts can help make you better, um, what that relationship should function like at at its highest level, uh, how to get the most out of each other. Um, And then, of course, kind of news notes, stories, nuggets from uh, the course of Jay's career uh, in more than two decades now at ESPN. So uh, really stoked that we had Jay on last week. So if you haven't caught that episode, uh, head back to our back catalog. You can get all of our previous episodes on the back catalog. Jay Billis was episode 70. Steve Jones from Penn State was 69 before him. Kevin Brown from ESPN. Mick Gillespie. David Crane from UAB. Chris Denary from the Indiana Pacers. uh, Sean Grandy from the Boston Celtics um, are all the most recent episodes, but it goes all the way back to Carter Blackburn, episode one, uh, Tony, uh, Tony, did I say Tony Caridi? Tony Caridi, I'm staring right at his episode, that's why I said that. Uh, Tony Caridi was episode 61. Uh, Andy Demetra was episode two. Ben Holden from CBS, I think, was episode four. So you can scroll back through and hear all of them if you're new to the podcast and uh, check out some of the other people we've had on and, uh, and get some different perspectives uh, than just the new ones that we bring you here every week. As always, we'd love to hear from you. If you want to let us know people to have on in upcoming episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Pitch some ideas to us. Uh, we are on Twitter at PXPCast. I am on Twitter at Joel Godet, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T. Or you can shoot me an email as well, J-G-O-D-E-T-T at B-S-U dot E-D-U, B-S-U for Ball State University. Uh, we did get a tweet asking for uh, us to have Kevin Harlan on the podcast upcoming, which... Like, I'm all about. Uh, Kevin and I have a very long relationship of me listening to him in the car. Uh, It's one-sided. He doesn't know about it. But uh, (laughs) um, I'd love to pick his brain. So uh, noted on that suggestion. And uh, we'll see (laughs) what we can do with that going forward. No promises. In the meantime, we have Dan Duva on the podcast this week, who is the first radio voice 
in the history of the Vegas Golden Knights, the newest team in the National Hockey League. And <laughs> we make this joke in the episode you'll hear coming up. Uh, no matter what happens from this point forward, nobody can ever take that away from Dan Duva. He is the first voice in the history of the Vegas Golden Knights. And a guy who uh, is just a fun listen. So I'm excited for this episode. Uh, he's a great storyteller. He's got some interesting stories from his time and his career. And we'll talk about graduating from high school and kind of, well, first off, when he was in high school, creating a broadcast network in high school. And then when he went, not, not even when he went to college, before he went to college, creating a broadcasting network with the Cape Cod Baseball League. And then when he went to college, creating some broadcasting opportunities for himself um, and, and always kind of trying to find that next thing or one more thing he can do um, to create some opportunities and, and get better and just continuously work at this craft. Uh, that sounds really wonky, but it's, uh, but it's interesting to hear him talk about. So I'm excited for you guys to hear that from Dan. Uh, most recently... Spent five years as the voice of the Syracuse Crunch. They are the AHL affiliate for, uh, most recently, the Tampa Bay Lightning. Before that, the Anaheim Ducks. And uh, parlayed that into getting really good and uh, becoming uh, an NHL broadcaster here in 2017 with the Vegas Golden Knights. Dan is also a special guy for me to have on this podcast because he and I go back to when I first started trying to become a sports broadcaster myself. I went to Syracuse, and at that time, Dan was a student at Syracuse before uh, he wound up at Fordham to finish out his career. Got the whole Marty Glickman experience there. Um, but when I went to college at Syracuse, I went to the first ever introductory meeting for WAER Radio, which we've talked about on the podcast before, is like the mecca student radio station personally, in America, but certainly at Syracuse. Costas, Tarico, McDonough, Albert, Horde, Roth, Benetti, Blackburn, Demetra, Roth, I, th I said that already, uh, throw names at me, Ian Eagle, um, anybody who's anybody, <laughs> uh, Pash, that's Caridi, that's come through Syracuse, ha has been an AER guy. And I go to that first introductory meeting thinking like, all right, I'm, I'm going to be a WAER guy. Only problem is 140 other people showed up and, and thought the same thing and they couldn't take all of us. So my first week of college, I got cut from the WAER sports staff before I was ever on it. Eventually wound up going back a semester later um, and everything was right with the world in my head. But at that moment, like, I, I thought it was over. Like, I've come to Syracuse and I've failed six days in. Uh, but at that point, I went to the other student radio station at Syracuse, 89.1 WJPZ, which, while AER did men's basketball, football, and men's lacrosse, Z89 did women's basketball, women's lacrosse, high school football in the area, it did, at one point, Junior League Hockey, the Syracuse Stars, I think we'll get a mention in this podcast from Dan. Um, and then it also did the portion of the first season that actually got played in the history of the Syracuse Soldiers, which was an indoor football team in a league that doesn't exist anymore and probably shouldn't have in the first place. But it was still fun. And it was the most 
comfortable bus I've ever been on in my life for a road trip that I took with that team. But I went to Z89 to get some exposure, and when I went to Z, I was introduced to a couple of folks. Uh, one of them, Andrew Gundling, who was the sports director, who has since gone on to work in radio in New York City, and Dan Duva, who was one of the big play-by-play guys at Z89. And Duva kind of took me under his wing at that point and taught me a lot about broadcasting and play-by-play and writing sports updates because that's how it all starts. You write sports updates, that's what gets you on the air first. And uh, I started doing sports updates on all the talk shows on Z89. And uh, I did 100 sports updates my first semester of college which was a record nobody had been keeping track of to that point, but we just assumed that was it. Uh, and uh, and I did a lot around Dan. So Dan was a guy that I had a lot of exposure to my very first year, and then he wound up um, transferring and, and heading down to New York City. But uh, for that time, uh, we, we, we grew close in this field and, and in this art, and then I wound up going to the Cape Cod Baseball League, which Dan will talk about, uh, where he was a broadcaster with the Chatham A's, and I was a broadcaster with the Orleans Cardinals. We wound up spending a summer together as well. Uh, Not totally together, but like 15 minutes apart. So Dan and I go way back, and he was one of the very first people that influenced me in broadcasting. So that's why uh, I'm super excited to finally have the opportunity to have him here on the podcast and talk a little bit about his career. This interview really doesn't have a beginning because... Dan and I just started talking on the phone and I hit record and uh, it just kind of starts like there's not really an official start. I think it, I, I will say here to officially start the podcast, but then I just included stuff before that. So <laughs> here is Dan Duva. Uh, kick back, relax. It's a really fun episode. We cover his rise to the NHL, his relationships with guys like Doc Emmerich and Ian Eagle and building relationships with guys like that early in his career. We talk about relationships with guys like Evan Longoria and the Cape Cod Baseball League. We'll talk about getting the opportunity to be a voice in the NHL and be the first voice of a team with the Vegas Golden Knights. And then we talk about some very serious things, too, um, because I had actually initially reached out to Dan to do this interview just a couple of days before the shootings in Las Vegas and um, let about two weeks go by and then... We, we got a chance to sit down and actually do the interview, but we talk about what it was like to be the voice of a team uh, in healing and to be on the air for the moment at the, the first home game um, when there was remembrance and kind of leaning on one another and being the guy to help uh, guide fans and Las Vegans through all of that on the radio. So we'll talk about the very serious nature of that inside of that and something that most of us will never experience uh, and hopefully don't have to experience. Um, some of some of us out there will. We'll, it's the world we live in. There will be some sort of tragedy that one of us out there will have to um, broadcast through at some point. Um, hopefully that never happens, but uh, it was certainly interesting to hear Dan's perspective on what it was like to be in his seat and um, in his position um, after what happened in Las Vegas and then on the radio uh, for what happened afterward in Las Vegas as well and the healing process. So uh, that as the groundwork, here is Dan Duva on episode 71 
of Play-By-Play Cast. What is the process of becoming the first voice in the history of an organization? How's that work? I still don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you heard about the franchise, the potential of the franchise, probably two years ago, you heard about it along with a few other cities as potential NHL cities. Like Quebec City had been talked about, Seattle had come up, Kansas City, a few other places. Vegas stuck. And it was not until, um, you know, a couple of years ago that, uh, that the NHL process concluded. And I remember following it along carefully and being somewhat surprised that the NHL would decide to expand to a 31st city without a 32nd city and an odd number of teams that can create a number of problems, of course, but they push through with Vegas and only Vegas. And then you start to see who's in charge, who are the people involved. And before you can hire broadcasters, you need chief operating officers, chief executive officers, general manager, et cetera, et cetera. And when I began to see how the other jobs were taking shape, then you go through your Rolodex and you see who knows who. And when it came to the organization here, um, George McPhee as the general manager was someone that I did not know personally, but knew others who knew him. When you can have an endorsement from the hockey operations side, I knew that would be important. But you also look at the people who have supported you throughout your own career, independent of a particular team. And for me, those two people for a long time have been Mike Emmerich and Ian Eagle, going back to my time in high school in Ridgewood, New Jersey, uh, not far from the Meadowlands where the Devils played, where the Nets played, and uh, at first probably bothering them, but ultimately striking up relationships with them to the point that uh, they today will still, for whatever reason, speak kindly of me. <laughs> uh, but they both have been so supportive through the years. And naturally, because this was a, a hockey job and my career has continued through the hockey world, Mike Emmerich has been in touch with people leading to jobs first with the devils organization echl trenton devils then the american hockey league the syracuse crunch an affiliate for the tampa bay lightning and now here are the brand new vegas golden knights each time uh, i know doc had put in a good word doc did not tell me that he put in a good word he found <laughs> clever ways of disguising that he was going to support me because that's how he operates and the lesson that I've learned from him and, and uh, learned from, from several others, you, you can never possibly thank somebody for all that they've done for you, the advice, the support, the reaching out on behalf of you. That all can't be repaid, but you can try to pay it forward to the next group, the next student. And that's why being in Syracuse for the last five years, I enjoyed uh, being around the students at SU, teaching at Newhouse, and having interns with me, one of whom got my job, Lucas Favalli, just starting his AHL career after a couple seasons in ECHL and the Southern League. He's now in the American Hockey League. I couldn't be more proud of that. But uh, to get back to those two people who supported me, um, Mike Emmerich and Ian Eagle. I mean, I, along with calling my parents uh, when uh, this uh, job became very close to a reality, uh, the other phone calls went to them. And, um, you know, the advice they offered in those moments helped iron things out, unlike perhaps uh, an ECHL job where you show up and they 
they tell you how much you're going to make and that you're going to have to travel <laughs> a lot. And uh, this is this is it. And you have no choice but to just nod your head and say, OK, and then <laughs> have a big smile and uh, work your rear end off uh, 24 hours a day. And, and in the minor leagues, how many different hats do you wear when it comes to um, a major league position? When uh, I, I suppose you're a bit more established, then uh, there is a little bit more room for discussion um, in, in the process. But to your original question with the process, I, I didn't really know what the process was going to be here. I thought it was getting quite late. Um, there was an agreement in April with a radio station and an agreement with a TV station in June. How the process for hiring broadcasters would unfold, I had no idea whether the team would handle it, the radio station, the TV station, I didn't know. So it was a matter of trying to poke around and find answers to those questions. Who would be the right person to contact? And ultimately, the answer to that question was Eric Tosi, who was hired here as the vice president of communications. And Eric had been with the Bruins for several years, about a decade, and had overseen the, the VP, uh, overseen the communications uh, and content uh, with the Bruins. And so he was here, and that was the person I was directed toward. And then you wonder, okay, how many people can I find who know him already and might be able to put in a good word? And that's where you start to draw in on your your references. And I mentioned uh, Doc and, and Ian, but other people in the world of hockey um, who might know him. Someone very helpful in the process for me was Matt Salmon, who is the Tampa Bay Lightning director of broadcasting. Um, being with the Crunch the last five years, had a lot with uh, the parent club in Tampa Bay. So he was very helpful. Um, you know, I could go down the list of the, of the people who put in a good word of people with the crunch, the owner of the team there, Howard Dolgan, the chief operating officer, Jim Sorosi. And you go up to Tampa with uh, Julian Brisebois, the assistant GM, Steve Eiserman, the GM, those people, um, you know, know other people. And, and that's how it works. Uh, you know, I could continue to name drop if you want me to, Joel. But the reality is relationships that have been built up over many years um, put me in the position where. You're not just going to get a job because somebody likes your tape. That's a big part of it. But other people need to hear from other people they trust that this guy's worth hiring. This is somebody you want to work with. Um, it's about character. It's about how you understand an organization's framework and what kind of an employee you're going to be. And I think that that's really what did it. It's, it's those people who, um, who I've known very well for a long time. And when you have those relationships. It, it, it has to be a mutual two-way relationship. It can't just be, hey, Joe Schmo, I need you to help me get a job. Can you call somebody? Like that's that's not going to work. Uh, that's not a relationship. That's just, uh, you know, a quid pro quo or something. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. But that's not the, the, the people who helped me get this position are people who I have relationships with, not just, the, I mentioned earlier, you know, the numbers and the email addresses in your Rolodex. That's probably not the best analogy because all those people are, are people who I know uh, and are willing to put their neck out uh, and, and put their reputations on the line to, to help me. So that, it really is a, a, um, over the course of many years, and I was first on the air when I was a freshman in high school in 1999. Um, and that's when I would have first introduced myself to Mike Emmerich in 1999. Uh, he wouldn't remember that probably, but that's when I remember meeting him. But it's the many relationships over the course of years that uh, ultimately put me in position for this. And then uh, I mentioned Dan Morazza, who was in charge of the social media here, and he'd been hired um, in 2016. 
And I knew that, and I had kept in touch with him. I'd seen him at a couple of AHL events over the years. And uh, when I knew he was hired here, you know, I was looking for maybe an inside scoop, like who was the right person to talk to. And Dan was very helpful in steering me in the right direction. So he made sure that Eric Tosi, the VP of communications here, got a look at my material and that I would get uh, consideration. And then you get a phone call and say, we'd like to chat with you. And I was surprised, Joel, that uh, I was not invited here to Vegas for an in-person interview. The only interviews that took place were by telephone. And uh, I, I think that the, uh, the, the sum of time I spent speaking with people with the Golden Knights is far less than the time I spent interviewing for my other two jobs in hockey, first with the Trenton Devils and then with the Syracuse Crunch. My recollection is that the, those interviews uh, took longer. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I think when you get to this point, you know, I'm an unknown at the NHL level. Other people who have been in the league a long time, they don't need to put together a list of references or a cover letter or even a resume and probably not even a demo tape. They just put their name in and say, hey, I'm the Bruins broadcaster. Please consider me. <laughs> and that's it. Uh, you know, Dave Gosher is, is, has been that Bruins radio guy for 17 years, and he is just all class. Uh, and and I, I don't know to what extent uh, he needed to, quote unquote, apply for the job, but he's among the most respected broadcasters in hockey, uh, not only on the radio side and in Boston, but he's broadcast for Westwood One nationally. Um, so people like uh, Howie Danaroff and uh, Kenny Albert, who I know through uh, through other places, uh, you know, Kenny with the Rangers and and Howie through Syracuse, all of that. I mean, they've they've worked with him, uh, you know, through Westwood One and raved about Dave. And, and so before I met him, I knew that I would like him. I, I, I like I said, I, I could not have that luxury. I did need to um, have a, a resume and a demo and all that stuff. And apparently they liked what they heard and liked what they read. That's interesting. I was going to ask you about the, uh, if they had you, I, I'm surprised they didn't even meet you in person, but like if they had to like do a demo game or any of that kind of stuff or <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and in Boston, I know that because Dave left there to come here, they had four different announcers broadcast for preseason games as an audition. Um, and uh, they ultimately made uh, their choice in part based on those auditions but uh, that that no was pressure. not going to be the case here, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's a brand new franchise, so they, uh, you know, they. Uh, it seemed that they probably wanted to have the broadcasters in place sooner than they were ultimately introduced. Um, but August fifteenth was the date they made the announcement, and I moved out here, or at least I flew out here. Moved is a an interesting term. I <laughs> flew out here on uh, August twenty seventh or twenty eighth. And uh, my stuff arrived from Syracuse a few weeks later, <laughs> but I was in a hotel without a car for uh, for a while, just trying to get settled. So it, it's been five weeks or so now that I've been out here. And, uh, you know, it, it is now that we're a few games into the regular season, I suppose, starting to feel a little bit more normal. Um, I want to unpackage a lot of or a couple of things that you mentioned there. Um, <laughs> yeah, a lot yeah, of stuff no, that I no, it's good, though. Sorry. No. <laughs> oh, Joel, I don't stop talking until the producer gets in my ear and says it's time for a break. So feel free. We don't have to, one because it's just a, jump yeah. in. No, you're good. <laughs> um, and, and hopefully, like, it, it would be a terrible decision by anybody to hire me to do a hockey game. So um, I, the, the name dropping is fine. Um, I just hope the hockey people out there were, like, feverishly writing them down. Uh, <laughs> uh, the last time I did a hockey game, I called it a ball, like, twice by accident. Yeah, that's yeah. happened to the best. Yeah, it was, a, yeah, yeah. 
Um, Where was that, by the way? It was Syracuse women's hockey. Ooh, Syracuse women's hockey. Yeah. yeah. Did you do any of the Syracuse Stars games in the I uh, didn't. They were, Junior League? We, they had stopped. We weren't doing the games anymore by oh, the time. Yeah, you were a yeah. couple years after me, so yeah. I that, I enjoyed doing those games so much. It was it was neat, and uh, the Cicero Twin Wings rinks there, they, uh, <laughs> the, the Syracuse Crunch practiced there from time to time, so I would have, uh, I'd have flashbacks. And it's uh, it's as cold now as it was back uh, <laughs> when I was in college. We did the Syracuse Soldiers. That was the we 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 picked up ah, indoor yes. football instead of youth That's hockey. Right, with a Kirby Dardar was the coach. Damn right. Yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. <laughs> it was great. They didn't win ever. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, oh, it didn't last long. No, so. no. Uh, Eleven games. Uh, anyway, uh, you mentioned though the the relationship building, and I and I'm mm. curious on that note because the thing I think you said was interesting was the the two-way street. Um, mm-hmm. Like when you're a high school kid and a college kid, and obviously it changes as you now get older and you're professionally on the, on, on the same level, you know, not necessarily at the same level cause he's doc, but on the same level in the NHL. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> what is, what is a college kid, Dan Duva or a high school kid, Dan Duva um, have to offer to doc Emmerich or Ian Eagle so that it, it's not, it's not a one-way street, but it becomes a two-way street. How, how do you make those work? That's a great question, Joel. Um, did you take my interviewing class at Syracuse? Oh, no, you're too, you're too <laughs> old. Uh, I, I think that what I hope and suspect that um, people saw in me uh, to give me their time, like, say, Mike Emmerich or Ryan Eagle, I think that they saw a, 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 an ambition maybe sometimes precocious, but curious and eager aspiring broadcaster. In other words, someone who really wanted to do this was committed to it and demonstrated the qualities they would hope to find in an aspiring broadcaster. When you ask good questions and demonstrate how much thought you've put into this, uh, and you can show the kind of uh, experiences that you've created for yourself uh, that you don't expect it to be handed a job in sports broadcasting or to be given an assignment without earning it. I think that when you you show that genuinely, you, know, you, you can't fake it. Uh, I think people recognize that. Uh, but when you can show it genuinely, I think that's what excites a veteran broadcaster. That's what excites me when someone in high school or in college wants to chat with me about the business, about finding a way to not just get a job, but how to get better. Um, When you can ask a a question that's just more than, um, do you know anybody who can get me a job? Well, I mean, come on. Uh, sure. Right. Yeah. You know. but, but when now, you will they can... follow through with that? I don't know, but they could right. get you theoretically. Yes. Uh, you know, but when you are more interested, I think that we call our play by play thing, a craft, sometimes an art, maybe some people consider it a science, whatever it might be, there's thought that goes into the way you do it. People have different styles and approaches, and I've got a binder full of notes I've taken on my own broadcasts, broadcasts I've watched, hearing other people talk about broadcasting, other people giving me advice. What's and in it that? goes back to, oh, everything. I mean, you could go in there, and I remember um, 
our friend from Syracuse, Andrew Arditi, sent me a, a quick email. And there's probably only about, uh, I mean, eight or nine sentences. But that email that he sent me, probably, I mean, at least 10 years ago is in there. Um, you know, uh, Mike Emmerich watching an entire uh, high school hockey game that I did a million years ago. That's in there. Uh, you know, watching, say, um, Marty Glickman uh, do a, a Knicks game from way back. You know, you, you find the video and you take notes on it. Um, you know, everybody in, in the world of baseball can uh, recite lines from Vince Scully's Sandy Koufax no-hitter in 65. And there are probably some thoughts on that. Uh, but you hear Bob Costas speak to a group of students when Sean McDonough visited Syracuse my freshman year. You go down the list. It's mostly sports broadcasters. I have some other influence as well. Edward R. Murrow and the Murrow Boys and, you know, Richard C. Hotlet and, and, uh, and even into some people of historical significance like John Adams, an author like David McCullough. Uh, the, those things are a little bit outside the world of sports broadcasting, but they still have shaped my principles and philosophies on how to do this sports journalism thing. And I do think it is journalism, by the way. It, it sometimes can take on a different form. Um, it is sort of a hybrid, but I, I do consider myself a, a journalist uh, more than an entertainer, though what I do is hopefully entertaining. Uh, the, the, the other stuff that's in that binder spans uh, more than 15 years, probably. And it, I, I've... <laughs> I've run out of room in the original one, so I've kind of stuffed some stuff into a secondary binder. And now, you know, like you, you got some others, like I'll find like a notebook and say, oh, I got to rip these few pages out of this old notebook and put it in the binder. This stuff is great. You know, so like if uh, I remember Bob Papa had listened to one of my football tapes, uh, I mean, just, oh, what tremendous insight, you know, he had. I, I mean, it, it, you go down the list. I mean, I got to meet Bob Wolf. I mean, Bob Wolf uh, was uh, just incredible in, 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 in a different era of sports broadcasting and having dealt with, you know, a, a terrible baseball team in Washington, but also going back to his uh, time as a baseball player at Duke. And you go on and on and on, and not to mention, you know, Don Larson and the perfect game and uh, the Colts Giants and Alan Amici and all that stuff. Uh, you know, so it's, it's some of those individual moments, but it really you get to the heart of why they are good at what they do and why they do things the way that they do. And everybody's a little bit different. You know, you got some similarities, but everybody has to find him or herself. And uh, that what is what I hope is in that book, that notebook. Um, and I'll flutter through the pages from time to time and perhaps find something inspiring. You know, maybe I'd forgotten about something. I'm a student of the craft, uh, you know, and, and I call it the, the Marty Glickman School of Play-by-Play -play because of um, his position as uh, maybe the, the godfather of sports broadcasting at Syracuse most notably, but his, uh, his approach and his mindset has percolated through the generations. So that's why I call it the Marty Glickman School. I don't believe there is actually a physical uh, you know, brick and mortar school. Well, it's but, the people uh, that started Syracuse and then yeah. go to Fordham. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, there, there's something like that. Gra graduate, uh, <laughs> graduating class of one. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, there, there are a couple people with connections uh, at both schools, and Marty was one of them. Uh, but uh, but I, I think that there are so many things to be learned, even if you disagree with somebody. You might not like a particular announcer's approach. It doesn't mean you can't learn anything from how that person broadcasts a game. That's fine. I take notes on things I don't like just as much as uh, 
or at least maybe not just as much, but um, I, I certainly sp- focus on things that I do like and, and, and things I learn, but uh, it's important also to ask yourself repeatedly why. Okay, I like this, why? I don't like this, well, why not? Those are very important questions. What are the things that you think about in that regard as well? I mean, like, will you sit down in front of a game and like expressly decide that you're going to, I don't know, I've turned on an iron basketball game before and been like, I'm just going to watch this and listen to him and see what I like. And, 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 mm-hmm. like, and, and it, it's weird because when that happens, I feel like it almost feels trivial in a sense because it, it's inauthentic. Like you're sitting down. It's like, I'm going to watch this because I'm going to learn something today. Um, is it more like for you, is it more that just in your life, when you come across stuff, it's, it's that you're constantly thinking about it and be, and then you write it down in the book. Yeah. You know, I, um, I will think back to a time in high school when I was starting to do this and, and, uh, and those years and uh you know the yankees are still in the midst of their great run and you had john sterling and michael k on the radio you had bob murphy and gary cohen on the radio for the mets uh, i could go down the list of all the broadcasters in new york and uh, you know doc with the Devils, sam rosen and kenny albert with the rangers howie rose with the islanders uh, you know you uh, went from howard david to bob with with the jets bob papa with the giants you know marv doing the knicks ian with the nets chris carino uh, I'm, I'm leaving people out, of course. Uh, I feel bad now, but I, but the point is, there you had all these very, very exceptional broadcasters, uh, and you were just soaking it all in, um, and you didn't know how good you had it. <laughs> uh, but when you're listening to that, and then you start doing it yourself, of course, you are in a certain way a product of the people you've been listening to the most, uh, and then you realize, okay, well, I, I can't do, uh, you know. Uh, a Howard David impersonation or a Gary Cohen impersonation or a Mike Emmerich impersonation. That, 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 that is not what you're trying to do. Um, but it sounds like that. <laughs> uh, so you, you then, as you're watching and listening, you can't help but think, Oh, how does this sound? Oh, what does this look like? So even as, as much as you'd like to just watch or listen to a game, there's a switch that is now permanently flipped on where you can't help but critique what you're hearing and seeing. I, I, I don't know that I've ever been able to switch it off. doesn't mean I can't still enjoy a game for the game, but it's hard not to think critically about a broadcast, in particular the on-air talent and in more specific terms, the play-by-play broadcaster, because, well, how might I handle this? Oh, wow, he handled that or she handled that in a way that I don't know. I would have thought of that. Wow, that's impressive. Or, geez, you know, I probably wouldn't have gone in that direction. I, I probably would have done this. It's just hard to not. I, I would imagine I mean, if you ever hear John Gruden on a, t- on a football broadcast, <laughs> I mean, the man is just perpetual football analysis. That's what he is. I, and I don't know that I have, have it the same way that John Gruden does, but it, it is to me a switch that I've not been able to turn off. You can't help but, but think critically about what you see and, and what you hear. And um, sometimes I, uh, I take what I think and write it down. Other times I don't. It's not like I'm always in, in ultra mode of, of scribbling down notes and ideas. But if I've, uh, I, I certainly have sat down at, uh, you know, on, on the couch and flipped on a, a hockey game and listened to say, 
you know, Pat Foley do a Blackhawks broadcast or, um, you know, Pete Weber on the radio for the Nashville Predators, whoever it is. Um, sometimes I, yes, I have sat down with the intent of taking notes on a particular broadcaster, but I remember listening to a, a Nashville Predators broadcast once a couple of years ago and, you know, Pete Weber, God bless him. He's, he's just among the kindest people in the business. Uh, and he, uh, <laughs> he's got the sense of humor. So I, 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 I don't think I wrote it down. Maybe I did, or I wasn't planning on writing anything down, but I might've scribbled down a note when I heard the following line as he was introducing the goaltender for the Montreal Canadians. Said, well, Mike Condon in goal tonight for Montreal. So, you know, the Canadians are practicing safe goaltending. And here we go from right to left. Yeah, like that's just stuff that I suppose 90% of the people listening to his broadcast that night missed it. But uh, <laughs> he's just great. So uh, so I might have scribbled that down. Uh, so it, it, it's hard to answer the question uh, definitively. I, sometimes I hear something and write it down. Sometimes I set out to write things down. But it is uh, an ongoing process. And I'm hopefully accelerating it, not slowing it down. I, I Just because I'm in the National Hockey League for – all of three games. That doesn't mean I've quote unquote made it. It just means that I've got to do even more to, to grow and to um, make sure that I can uh, stay here. Let's get into that side of things a little bit too. Um, hmm. And I'll, I'll get into the, the current events side of it as well, because I'm sure there's a, a extra piece of it um, with where you're at right now as well. Um, but uh What's it like being the voice of a new team and being a voice that now people will identify with as that team? Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if it's three games and only three games and it never goes beyond that, you're still the first <laughs> voice of the Golden Knights. Uh, so yeah. what is it, what's it like to, to be that guy? Um, yeah. And I know they hired you wanting you to kind of be that guy for a long time. Mm-hmm. So to have that, mm-hmm. that designation. Yeah. Uh, it, it's sort of a, an odd thing to consider because, you do wonder about the future. It's hard to look too far into the future. If you had asked me 15 years ago, hey, Dan, you're going to get to broadcast sports professionally, uh, I might not have guessed hockey would be the one and would not have guessed it would be in Las Vegas. <laughs> but you um, you think about the experiences in your life, whether in broadcasting or not. And no, I've never been the voice of an expansion team, but I mentioned earlier how I began broadcasting sports in high school. And while Ridgewood High School Athletics had existed for, I'm sure, well over 100 years, it had never been broadcast before. So I helped create that. I was the first broadcaster for Ridgewood Maroon Sports, though the sports had existed for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Um, the, Cape, the Cape Cod Baseball League um, had has been around since the 1800s, NCAA certified since the early 60s, but there had never been team broadcasters before. There had been maybe an all-star game here or something like that, but there had never been team broadcasters. Except for and, Kurt, uh, Kurt Gowdy. Kurt Gowdy, right, yeah. in uh, the fictional portrayal uh, <laughs> of himself. Right, that film, Summer Catch, came out in 2001, and uh, it was uh, already an idea to begin broadcasting games for the Cape League uh, in particular for the Chatham A's. And the first real season on the air was 2003. We kind of, there were, you know, we had kind of fooled around with some things prior to that. But I was in high school in New Jersey. I say we, I'm referring to my friend Guy Benson. 
uh, who's now a Fox News contributor, but we went to high school together. Um, when I went to Syracuse, he went to Northwestern, and our thought was, what would we do to continue broadcasting sports together after our four years together in high school, since we're going to different schools uh, for college? And uh, here was the Cape League that had no broadcasting for the teams, and Chatham was the preeminent franchise. Uh, you know, the movie had not yet come out, uh, Summer Catch in 2001, but the idea was generated around that. And as I say, we graduated from high school in 2003 when we were on the air the next day. Uh, and that uh, that was the creation of something, was building something. That experience, you know, and to a smaller extent, you know, at Syracuse University, I mean, the beginnings of broadcasting Syracuse softball online. Oh, so you guys started um, SU All yeah. Access, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, prior to that, anything that was streamed online was pulled off a radio station to the point where like you could hear static, like it was actually pulled off the airwaves. Uh, but what we wanted to do something that wasn't going to fit on the radio, but we think we thought still needed to be covered. And, uh, and softball was, was it. Um, I, I was uh, helpful in, in bringing uh, high school football broadcast back to uh, Z89, one of the radio stations at SU. But, but those were things that, um, you know, I, were it was a matter of I, I wanted to get more reps on the air uh, creating opportunities for you that's really what it's all been about it's creating opportunities for yourself uh, the high school thing the Cape Cod thing a few opportunities there at Syracuse in addition to the opportunities that have already been created and uh, and and so I, I so to answer your question to be the first voice of a franchise while I've not been that I have been on the ground floor of various broadcast enterprises. And I made that a point in discussing my candidacy with the people here. I thought that that would be valuable. And yes, we are building a radio network here. Um, and the folks that I work with at our radio station are unfamiliar with uh, game broadcast, especially at the NHL level. Um, and so I've been helpful and I, I hope uh, I've been kind of leading and directing a lot of the decisions uh, for the radio broadcasts uh, because um, I have a great deal of experience in getting broadcast enterprises off the ground. I would not have expected that, uh, you know, as I say, from high school or Cape Cod or SU or whatever else, that it would lead to, um, you know, I would have to be in this kind of position uh, at the NHL, but that's all the fun of being part of an expansion franchise. Best story from Cape Cod. <laughs> Oh, most of them I can't tell you. That's true. I've been sworn to secrety, yeah. uh, or I've you had would, to change the you name would to ruin, guilty. You would ruin yeah. Evan Longoria's career. <laughs> uh, you know, th th that summer, you mentioned Evan Longoria. He was the uh, the MVP of the Cape League in 2005. Not to say there's and, anything about Evan Longoria that was not <laughs> broadcastable. but uh, You know, I, I, and I'll tell you something about Evan. Um, he, uh, you know, he'd come to the Cape League unheralded. He was at Long Beach State, but he had transferred into Long Beach State from a junior college, and he only got playing time his sophomore year at Long Beach because Troy Tulowitzki got hurt, and the Chathamays had a relationship with Mike Weathers, the head coach at Long Beach at the time, and they wanted Jared Weaver, who has had a great career himself, but they wanted Weaver, and Mike Weathers said to John Schiffner, the Chatham coach, uh, you can have Jared, but we also want you to take this, this infielder, Evan Longoria, and John Schiffner said, okay. And Evan showed up. Uh, I, I remember meeting him at batting practice the first game of the season. He led the league in home runs and RBIs. 
hit in the three hole, played second base, by the way, was an all star at second base. Chris Coglin played third. Todd Frazier played short. Uh, Andrew like Miller. Ter- terrible team. Yeah, <laughs> right. A- Andrew Miller and, uh, and uh, uh, Jer- uh, Jared, I, said, I think I said Jared Weaver. I meant Jared Hughes. Jared, Jared, Hughes. Weaver, was, Jared Weaver was supposed to be on the team. He, he wasn't. He was one of the guys I think went to Team USA or I forget. But Jared Hughes. So he's had a fine Jer- career, too. Yeah. Right, right. That There have been so many. Uh, but but Jared Hughes was the pitcher at Long Beach State. Uh, so pardon my uh, my speech there. Uh, so, yeah, it was uh, Jared Hughes and uh, Nevin Longoria who came from Long Beach. But but, but I was going to mention, you know, Evan didn't come from uh, a family that had a lot of money. Uh, they didn't have the opportunity to meet him in Cape Cod to watch him play for the Chatham A's. They were from Downey, California. So the following spring, uh, I, I made a, a trip out to Southern California to visit a number of former and future Chatham A's players. And Evan was one of them. And I uh, went to stay with him there in, in Long Beach, California. And it happened to be the birthday for one of his cousins. And to make a long story short, uh, I spent, you know, an evening with Evan's extended family, his parents, his siblings, cousins, etc. And I was treated like royalty. They spoke to me as though they'd known me for years. And it was because all of them had listened to pretty much every moment of every Chad Amaze broadcast the previous summer. That's but I'd cool. never met them. I had never met them, um, and they were so generous and hospitable and kind. And I, I will always remember that to the point where a couple of years later, I was visiting a friend in Boston who was attending BU, and uh, it was at the very beginning of the baseball season, and the Rays were coming to town to play the Red Sox. They had played an afternoon game in Baltimore. And uh, I just asked my, my buddy, hey, you know, are the Red Sox home? Maybe we should try to go to a game tomorrow. We looked it up, and wouldn't you know, the Rays were coming. And because of the schedule, I figured, oh, hey, the Rays are probably in town right now. I know this kid that they just called up uh, from the minors. Uh, his name's Evan Longoria. And my buddy joked to us, is he related to Eva Longoria? <laughs> no. But, and uh, as it turned out, you know, I met up with, uh, with Evan. And he was, uh, we had dinner with, uh, with Johnny Gomes. And Evan told me his, uh, his parents were coming to town the next day. Um, so we had a great night uh, at, in Boston, but then, uh, you know, I made sure to, to go and, and sit uh, with, with Evan's family at the game the next day. And part of their visit to New England was to go down to Chatham to see where Evan had played a few summers earlier because of how meaningful that experience was um, in his life and in his career. So that, that was pretty neat. And that's not a story that took place in Cape Cod, but it's an example of the relationships and the people that you get to know there. Another guy that I had visited on that trek to Southern California was Baron Frost, who played at USC. I was a groomsman in his wedding a few years later. Uh, you know, the, the, the number of people who I've met through covering sports, whether it was in Cape Cod or, um, you know, college sports, professional sports, whatever it is, those are some of the people I'm closest to. Uh, in in my life and uh, you know from a baseball standpoint the one story that always sticks out uh, from the Cape League there are some incredible games but one will never show up in a record book and it's because it was not played to completion because of fog Andrew Miller in 2004 struck out 12 batters in four innings and when the fifth inning came around the fog did two and the umpire suspended play and eventually had to stop the game and cancel the game and when it's rescheduled they start over from the beginning but andrew miller uh, and this was after his freshman year at north carolina struck out 12 guys in four innings and twice in the same at bat he got a right-handed hitter to swing and miss 
at the slider, and that slider had such a steep break that it hit the batter in the back foot. Swing and miss, hit him in the back foot twice in the same at bat. That's how dominant he was that night, striking out 12 guys in four innings. But it never happened because the game was never completed. Uh, that, that was a great one. Uh, many nights, uh, you know, on, on the beach, and I remember it's, it's laughable now, I guess, but uh, at age 19, I remember seeing a shooting star for the first time with Andrew Miller. <laughs> How do you like that? It's, it's adorable. <laughs> well, isn't that nice? Yeah. Uh, but, but he's great, you know, and I got to see Andrew, um, you know, when I had a playoff game in Toronto last year when uh, the Indians were playing the Jays. And, you know, we just exchanged text messages the other day. It's so hard to keep in touch with everybody. You try, and if you find a way to cross paths, that's wonderful. But, uh, you, you know, you, you always uh, think fondly about the times that uh, that you had, especially when you were still up and coming. How the heck did you wind up a hockey broadcaster? Oh, I mean, because I would have thought, I mean, you said it earlier, I would have thought the same thing. Yeah. I mean, baseball or yeah, me too. something else. Yeah, me too. And I, I played baseball in, in high school, uh, or at least tried to. And uh, I loved baseball. My dad had played baseball in college, and uh, he coached me when I was younger. Um, he got on for us, going to games, going to face a little kid. Uh, and all of that, some some big moments in my life are around baseball. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, the, the Cape League experience put me in touch with a lot of people in the world of baseball. But as it happened, the first opportunity that was presented to me, um, you know, full time job offer was was with hockey. I know I had explored others, you know, whether it was minor league baseball or um, even some college baseball opportunities with specific schools, but um, the timing wasn't right or the situation didn't work out either way on either end. And then when the Trenton Devils, the ECHL affiliate for New Jersey, was looking for a broadcaster uh, and director of public relations, it seemed too good to be true. Um, And I had been in touch with Mike Emmerich, of course, for a long time, but I had also covered the Devils a bit with a WFUV, the Fordham station. And so I knew some of the people there and it couldn't be closer to home. The timing was relatively close to the start of training camp. So they didn't want to wait long for say someone to move across the country. You got the idea that they just wanted to fill the position. Uh, and if they could do so with somebody local, they wouldn't have to worry about relocation expenses or anything like that. And if you have somebody, um, you know, like Mike Emmerich, who puts in a good word for you, that certainly helps quite a bit. But the, the other reference, Joel, for that gig, um, John Schiffner, who I mentioned a few moments ago, the Chatham A's <laughs> manager, John Schiffner played his college baseball at Providence in the mid-70s. And you may know who the athletics director was at Providence in the mid-70s, Lou Lamarillo. And uh, Lou's running the Devils, of course, at that point. His son, Chris Lamarillo, is in charge of the minor league affiliates. And John Schiffner babysat for Chris Lamarillo in the mid-70s. So, uh, so John Schiffner got in touch with Lou. Uh, I, and Mike Emmerich got in touch with Lou. I went to visit with Jim Leahy at the team's office down in Trenton and met with him for, uh, for a couple of hours. And I remember towards the end of the interview, he asked me a question. And it's a simple question that many people, I'm sure, are asked and don't think too much about. But it was this following question. Do you have any questions for me? And I had been 
given a phone call uh, a few days earlier by Mike Emmerich. I told him that I had a, you know, this interview and uh, it was going to be on this Thursday at this time and everything else. And, um, and I just sent him an email just to update it. And rather than getting an email back, I got a phone call about five minutes later. And the message from Doc and, and sort of this pep talk that he gave me was uh, when you go to the interview, don't tell them how good you are and all about your experiences. They already know how good you are. They like your tape. They like what's in your background. You don't need to talk about yourself in that way. What you want to do is show them how hard you're going to work for the organization, what you will bring to them and what kind of an employee you're going to be. Show them how hard you're going to work for them. So I had that in mind when I walked into the Trenton Devils office. And when Jim Leahy rocks back in his chair and pulls on his graying mustache and asks, do you have any questions for me? The response I had was, when can I start? I'm probably not the first person to use that response, but I had that exact response because of the pep talk that Doc gave me. And Jim Leahy smiles, and I thought, well, geez, either I just lost the job or <laughs> I just sealed it for sure. And he told me about how he once a semester would go visit one of his friends who teaches at NYU and the sports business. And when uh, Jim talks about going for a job interview, he says, when you're asked that question, do you have any questions for me? The only response should be, when can I start? And when he told me that with a big smile on his face, I figured I had the job. And that was on a Thursday. He said, I want you to go to meet with the folks in Newark on Saturday, meaning the Lamarillos and uh, Mike Levine, the VP of communications. And so I went up there on Saturday, uh, met with them. It seemed to go well. And what Jim Leahy had told me in Trenton was, if things go well on Saturday, we'll see you here in Trenton on Monday. Okay, so I'm there in Newark on Saturday, and it was going really well, but it didn't seem like an interview as much as like, hey, we just want to get to know you. So at no point did anyone tell me, you've got the job. And it was kind of a George Costanza moment. Like, <laughs> I think I have the job. Pretty sure I got the job. Pretty, and uh, as pretty it, sure. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so uh, I was like 90-some percent sure I had the job. It wasn't 100%, to be honest with you. And as it happened, that Saturday, I had planned to go up to Syracuse for a football game. So after this, uh, this chat in Newark with uh, the Devil's Brass, I hopped in the car and I had three and a half, four hours to think about it on the way up to Syracuse for this football game. And uh, and I was like, well, you know, I'm pretty sure I have the job. I'm just going to show up uh, Monday morning. And the worst thing that happens is somebody else is in my chair. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I showed up. There was nobody in my chair, but there was a little red thumb drive on my desk. And that was it. There were there was no formal greeting or welcome. It was just here's the little red thumb drive. Go to work. And everything that I needed to figure out for my first job in pro hockey was apparently contained on this thumb drive. Um, <laughs> and I just figured it out from there. I basically had to uh, to go through everything uh, bit by bit to, to understand what I needed to do. But that that is how it got started with the Devils organization. And that was, you know, as I said, it was it was, uh, it was September because football season had begun. I think it was September 21st. And uh, that's how close to the start of hockey season I began with the Devils. And, uh, you know, I, I still don't know why it was hockey rather than, than baseball. I have done plenty of baseball since then. I've gotten to do, while I was in Syracuse, got to do some of the Syracuse Chiefs games 
uh, some on TV, some on the radio, not as much as I would have liked to do, but I still go down to the Cape League and do a, do a, a couple games here, maybe the All-Star game once in a while, but I like to work with the student broadcasters and coach them. So I'm still connected to baseball and in, uh, in a number of ways. But but yeah, I think, uh, they, as I've joked many times now, they keep giving me hockey jobs and I keep taking It's not a bad thing. There are worse yeah. things. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to go back to Vegas and I, I wanted to ask this mm-hmm. question, um, but I thought it would be uh, more fun to get the baseball stuff in first. But in terms of being the voice that people associate with a new team, um, you've got the unique distinction um, and not in a good way of having to start a franchise um, under the public circumstances that you had to in the city that you had to. Um, And people often turn to sports and kind of, you get that the the whole spiel about people turn to sports for a a release and a relief. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, and I thought, you know, from, from what I saw and from what I read that, that the Knights did a really good job um, with everything they did surrounding um, the shooting in Las Vegas and honoring the victims um, and so forth for, for their opener. Um, what was it like being a part of that? Um, I guess for the home opener, but also before that, when you were just on the air um, on the road and um, mm. kind of taking, taking to the radio and being that release for uh, what was um, a city that, that was in a, in a, a situation most people uh, have never and, and will never experience. Yeah, their their first is the idea of broadcasting an an NHL game for the first time, and while yeah, there were two games in the regular season at Dallas and at Arizona before the first Golden Knights home game. The reality is, I broadcast seven preseason games this year, and while they didn't count in the standings, they were still on the air. I still had to prepare for them. There was still hockey played. And it was a broadcast. So I think of the now 10 Golden Knights broadcasts I've had, the only one that felt, oh boy, this is the NHL, was the very first one in Vancouver uh, back um, in whatever date it was in September. That was the one that I was seeing the routine for the first time. And it was the first broadcast, first game for the team. So it, it probably drew uh, more listeners than your average preseason game. That was the, the one that really stuck out. And I had this conversation with Dave Gosher just a couple nights ago. Actually, it was just after the, uh, the first home game. And he said that his very first preseason game with the Boston Bruins was the one with the most nerves. Not to say that the nerves really got in the way, but um, you know, he he told me about how he had, you know, used in interviewing Pat Burns, you know, the head coach of the Bruins at the time, and you know, that was the first thing. Um, once that interview was done, then it was kind of down to business. And I think we traveled up to Vancouver that day, and once I got settled in the booth, and we had a couple technical things to work out, and probably the distraction of technical difficulties uh, made sure that I <laughs> I was. Uh, I didn't have time enough to be nervous about the broadcast. I knew I was ready as uh, prepared as I needed to be for the players and the game and the circumstance of what was happening. And I think that that experience of that very first NHL broadcast made it less nerve wracking going forward. The game in Dallas to begin the regular season in Arizona the next day. But then of course that first home game, it was a matter of finding the right way to express 
the feelings of the community, not only to others within the community, but to the many eyes and ears from beyond Vegas, um, beyond the immediate area, and how to possibly bring that all together is a, a daunting challenge. And you can't approach these moments in a way that's too different than any other game. I mean, I'm a reporter. I reminded myself to be attentive, to be prepared, to watch and listen, perhaps more carefully than normal. I mean, we've done, you know, so many games uh, over the years. Uh, you know, you're doing a Sunday, a third game in three days. You know, it's probably not going to be the, the very best broadcast that you've ever done. But that um, doesn't mean it's, it's not good. It's just maybe not your best. I needed to be at my best. And I don't script anything that I do. That's, that's just not the approach. You are prepared to an extent so you can provide pertinent information to enhance your broadcast. But it's also a matter of observing and, and listening so that you can react and uh, underscore something, enhance something that you see or that you hear. And if you're really at your best, provide context to provide perspective. Uh, and to me, the emotion of everything that was going on I was in high school when September 11th happened. I remember how sports was instrumental in, in getting people back towards normalcy. Uh, people needed to cheer. And I knew that people would need to cheer uh, at, at the Golden Knights game, not only because it was the start of the franchise, but because it would be cathartic. But, uh, but how to summarize all of that? Um, I didn't know. I, I, I didn't really plan anything. I just wanted to describe for people at home what they could not see. There were videos played during the ceremony that had no speech. There was music, but the images were in no way commutable to the radio. I had to describe what was happening. Um, the only time that I, I really totally silenced myself was during the 58 second moment of silence to recognize the 58 people who died. Other than that, I tried to weave in some description with the ceremonies own audio, the music, or perhaps some of the words that were spoken by the captains from around the NHL who sent a message. The first responders in one video chanting Vegas strong. And ultimately it came to the Star Spangled Banner, which was so touching because it was people from the Harvest Festival that began the anthem and then encouraged the other 18,000 folks in the building to join them. That was followed by Derek Anglin delivering a speech, the kind of speech that I have not seen before. Um, we remember what David Ortiz did at Fenway in Boston after the marathon bombing. Um, it was an angry speech that David Ortiz delivered at that point in time. Uh, rem remember the profanity, of course. Uh, Derek Anglin is not David Ortiz, but Derek Anglin has lived in this community for over a dozen years. He played minor league hockey here with the Vegas Wranglers, and he has lived here in the offseason, met his wife here, had kids here. He's now in his 15th professional season. So he was the obvious choice to address the crowd. I was not aware that he was addressing the crowd, and I interviewed him for my pregame show that morning. And how he delivered such a poignant speech without stumbling and finding the right words delivering it with the tone that he did was inspiring to me. And while I was listening to that speech, Joel, I, I again, you, you try to 
think of the right words. And the first thing I, I said after the speech was, there are tears of sadness, there are tears of joy, and then there are the tears of the kind we just experienced. I couldn't tell if it was sadness or joy. It, it really was neither or both. I, I, I couldn't find the right way to describe the emotion, but I knew it wasn't only sadness and it wasn't only joy. So that's why I said the tears of the kind we just experienced. Anybody listening to it, I think, felt it. And then the PA announcer came on and got them all riled up. And then the PA announcer got them into a Go Knights Go chant. And, um, you know, as uh, I was listening to all of that and reflecting on the Derek England speech, I thought of a, a Springsteen song. And, you know, being from New Jersey, it's, uh, it's in our blood to be uh, loyal followers of Bruce Springsteen. And there's a song that he wrote uh, called Living Proof. And uh, if you've listened to the song, it has several references to Las Vegas, not directly Las Vegas, but there's the desert city and references to gambling and so on. And the line of the song that came to me was all that's sure on the boulevard is that life is just a house of cards. And uh, that line came to me and I thought that that was a way to contrast what we were now seeing and Vegas strong, right? The sort of the, the mirror image of, uh, you know, the imagery of a house of cards and then Vegas strong. So I, I said something like, you know, 25 years ago, Springsteen wrote a song in line with Las Vegas, the desert city, and said, all that's sure on the boulevard is that life's just a house of cards. And I paused because I almost broke into tears myself. But I said, there's something new on Las Vegas Boulevard. And it's strong. Vegas strong. And tonight, we have living proof. We've got hockey. And then I went into the lineups, and then they dropped the puck and so on. But it, it was not scripted. Uh, as the song came to mind, I jotted down a few words. I just wrote down Vegas. I uh, wrote down strong, Vegas strong, and living proof, just so I, I wouldn't lose the moment. But that came to me while I was listening to his speech. That's as, as much of a scripted line as I've ever delivered. And uh, I, I thought that that captured it uh in a way that you could see what is an outsider's perception of Vegas and city and it's the strip and all that. But now going into a new era of major league sports, here is a franchise that is beyond the strip. It is a community's team. And this community that is experienced the massacre is in a fragile state, like a house of cards, but the strong response and the hashtag Vegas Strong was, uh, I thought, a great way to draw a line and propel a shift forward. That this is the beginning of something new, and um, I, I, I thought that uh, that in, at least at the time. I mean, I, this is all in retrospect that I thought about it. It just came to me in the moment uh, that um, you know. Then they, uh, you know. I, I, then they, they were ready to drop the puck, and, and I said something like, in just a moment, Vegas becomes a major league city. They dropped the puck, and then I said, we're underway at T-Mobile Arena. Golden Knights control from right to left, and then it was just a hockey game after that. And uh, I, uh, it was a moment that I'll always remember, and to this point of my career, it's got to be among the most um, poignant moments. I was uh, really, I think the word is relieved. I didn't screw it up. I don't think I screwed it up. 
um, you know, you, you, you try not to, I, 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 I like to critique my broadcast, but I don't lament things that I've, I've done. You know, you, if you screw something up, you can't, it's just, ah, you, you move on and do better next time. I don't know that there's, there have been many calls or descriptions that I've had in my career that I've um, reflected upon as much as I have this one. And it's only been a couple of days. Um, and I think that that's because we're all trying to find a way of processing what happened here. Um, and now that the grieving process has moved forward, uh, it's been, you know, almost two weeks now. Um, I think that uh, that was important for, for me to find a way to process it. I was walking home uh, from the arena that Sunday night after our postgame radio show because there was a preseason game that night. So I didn't hear the shots, but I, I live very close to that area. So I could see and hear all the police cars and listen to the police scanner that night. I was nervous to go to sleep because of how many other reports there were of active shooters. The Bellagio in New York, New York, and I live so close to there. I was concerned that it would uh, be a growing massacre. In fact, it turned out to be untrue that there was just the one shooter. As sad as that was, it seemed like it was getting worse um, late that night. But I... Uh, I just was, uh, I, I've been trying to find a way to, to sort of wrap my mind around it and move forward. And I hope that with the, the words that I found, I could help some other people wrap their minds around the situation. And also uh, because of the moment and how uplifting it was, convey that sense to the people who listened. Um, I appreciate you answering that because that's a situation uh, most of us will never find ourselves in uh, and thankfully so. Um, so I was, I'm, just kind of curious the thought process and methodology that that goes behind all of that because of uh of the position that that we get put into with with kind of what we do and, and where you were at yeah and you know joel just like any game you don't you can't you can't script it you can't think about it too much i mean everything i just said uh, again it's all in retrospect while it was going on you just do what you've done as a play-by-play broadcaster as a reporter for years and that is to see and hear and to convey all of that with words it happened in the same way that i would call a little league baseball game the situation was incredibly different but the approach was the same you try to find the right words paint a picture express the feeling and you want someone listening to feel like he or she was right next to you whether it's a little league game or that first Golden Knights game, the approach is the same. The thought process is the same. It just, in retrospect, has turned out to be what I just talked about. Uh, I, I, I never, um, you know, it, it's just, it's an odd thing because I normally don't think that much about it after the fact. I certainly didn't think about it that much while it was happening. It just, I just reacted. If I can roll with that to, uh, usually on this podcast we get really wonky and uh, and and talk <laughs> and, and talk x's and o's of play-by-play um yeah and i i haven't asked you anything along those lines so i wanted to before i let you go um mm-hmm. in terms of the particulars of a hockey broadcast to you uh what makes good hockey on the radio a lot of the same things that make any sport listenable uh, hockey unlike say baseball <laughs> does not lend itself to storytelling uh, they're Big challenges in broadcasting baseball and hockey, but particularly on the radio when people can't see what's going on. I will be among the first people to tell you that hockey can be a tough listen on the radio. Um, There's there's an old book Marv Albert wrote in, uh, I think, in the 70s 
called Yes, of course. And this was when he was doing the uh, the Rangers and the Knicks on a regular basis. And in that book, he admits to the same thing I'm admitting now. Hockey's a tough sport to listen to. And how can you take a sport that has so many things happening and express it in a way that's palatable? And I remember what Mike Emmerich had told me years and years ago, uh, and it was advice that he got from a voice coach. Uh, Doc was describing hockey games on the radio so quickly. Yes, he was saying everything that he wanted to say, but it was so fast, an average listener could not process it effectively. It would go in one ear and out the other. So are you really doing your job? You might think that you're capturing as much as you want because you're saying so much, but you're not because he was just going too fast. So if there are, say, a dozen things happening at any given moment in a hockey game, you certainly can't say them all. You can't say half of them, maybe one or two, maybe. It's choosing which of those dozen things is pertinent at the moment and then connecting them all in a way that is a theater of the mind. If someone, and again, this goes for any sport, if you can see it with the words I'm, I'm using, well, then I've done my job. Um, you're going to miss stuff. That's frustrating, but that's part of it. Uh, you, um, you want people to feel like they can see it without having to try. And you don't want, you know, it's, it's entertainment, right? I don't want people sitting there just hanging on every word because they have to process it so carefully so they can. I want people to just turn on the radio and understand what's going on without too much effort. <laughs> um, and so that is, uh, that is a, a talent that is acquired through repetition um, and listening back and figuring out, okay, what makes sense here? What can I, what details can I add that really help you see? And something as simple as left or right goes a long way. And it might be the lefty shooting James Neal it might be the lefty shooting James Neal in the left wing circle, the far side of the ice. He steps towards the left wing corner. Uh, when you can add that little extra detail left or right, it really does help people see. Then you can bring it to life further by adding colors. I'm sure, there are uniform colors, but I'll try to add, uh, you know, colors in the crowd, the yellow kick plate, you know, the, the railing in Dallas is green and, you know, it's different colors in different places. You know, the helmet color, somebody's hair color, um, wh whatever it might be. They've got white tape on their black stick. Those small details are important. And, and, and this goes for vocabulary as well. You don't need a, uh, a high sounding word to make you show off your vocabulary. It's just choosing the right word. There are so many. And, and Mike Emmerich's verb choice documented as often as it has been pitchfork shows you yeah right i mean and, and ladled by the way right yeah, Best yeah these are not complicated right they're, they're not complicated words they're just the right ones <laughs> you know the, the special meaning of a thing the special meaning of, a, of an action and when you could put things in motion even if it's a stationary thing when you could put things in motion you know when, when you in your mind picture a memory you often picture it moving uh, we don't often use our mind to recall a snapshot and and only a single millisecond in time. Things are moving. I mean, try, try to just stop and do absolutely nothing and think of something that's not moving. It's hard to do. Everything's moving. So if you can 
continue to put things in motion. In hockey, uh, <laughs> things are often in motion. Uh, but but even the the, the presumably or, or the uh, you know the, the static items, what you would think to be the you know if you could bring those things to life, that helps. Um, the other thing with hockey is who's on the ice. Unlike some of the other sports, where you know you. <laughs> Batting order is uh, is determined beforehand. You know, football, you have a pretty good sense of uh, who's on offense and defense. You've got the school positions. You might change in a player to a player here from play to play, basketball substitutions and so on. But hockey, I mean, you might have five players go on and five players go off in the middle of the play. That is a challenge to keep up with. But, but it serves two purposes. Not only are you reminding people who's on the ice, but you're doing something to educate the fan somebody knows that James Neal is on the ice with David Perron and Cody Eakin, then you begin to think of those three players as a group and how they complement each other on the ice, their personalities. You think of them as a trio, same with defensive pairs and so on. So I try to not simply identify who has the puck, but who's on the ice and which line is it? You know, James Neal has the puck on the right wing boards. His line mates, Cody Eakin and David Perron, join him as they enter the zone. That's the kind of thing that helps someone put it together and see it so that they're prepared for Cody Eakin and David Perron when James Neal passes the puck to them and they're not coming out of the blue. So much happens that you, you need to use those down moments to prepare your listener for what might happen. There's more anticipation in hockey play-by-play than the other sports because so many different things might happen at any given moment. That's not to say you guess at what is going to happen, but you prepare for potential happenings and outcomes and, and thinking like a hockey player. And that's why going to practice is so important because you could see what player tendencies are, what schemes the teams have. Um, so there, there are a lot of things with hockey, but identifying the players, putting things in motion, the small details of left and right, adding colors, those are the important things. And then making an effective use of the back door. As I said, you can't say everything. So if there's a, a two-on-one breakaway, there's a shot and a save. Well, that doesn't nearly describe everything that happened. But on the back door, I might add some detail about how the puck was fluttering on the righty's blade. He settled it just as he got to the right wing dot. He let a rip with a snapshot. And the goalie snatched it under his armpit with the glove to his left, turtled down and got the whistle. That's stuff that you can add after the fact so that you're still on time. You never want to be behind the play. You don't want to hear the whistle in the crowd and then still be describing it. You've got to give people what they need right now. Add the detail on the back door once you have a moment to breathe. And that's when people are going to have um, people will have patience for that kind of detail. They don't have patience for save or goal <laughs> in play or out of play. You've got to, you've got to, provide those essential bits of information immediately and color it in on the back door. How and when do you tell stories? And I get, cause I, <laughs> I would imagine it's probably applicable to, to yeah. you know, football or basketball in, in the, in the way you pace yourself and hockey mm-hmm. certainly the extreme, uh, but where's your window? Yeah. And, and it, you hope to have a sense of the game, different teams play at different paces and depending on the opponent, you might have a higher tempo game, a slower game. And when those moments happen, you recognize them and weave a story in a moment that might seem otherwise dull. Uh, if you've got a high scoring, high tempo team, there are 
it might not be too many of those moments. Um, and that is the direction that the NHL is going, thankfully, because if you go back to the mid nineties, uh, the neutral zone trap and the, uh, the lack of uh, interference penalties and all that made the game seem slow. Uh, they opened things up. They eliminated the two line pass um, and players now are faster. There is a greater international flavor that has made the skill aspect of the game more prevalent. And overall, I think the game is more entertaining now than it has been. But uh, to tell stories, icing is a great time to tell a story. You can typically see that an icing is coming because one team is on its heels and is trying to just put an end to whatever the attacking team is doing. And then when there's a clear, um, everybody knows what happens with an icing. Okay, it's cleared down. That means the faceoff is going to be in the other zone. Uh, you then have maybe 20 seconds to conclude a story, continue a story, um, maybe begin a story, maybe, if uh, if you think that the pace is um, suitable for it. But it's telling stories is hard during a radio broadcast of hockey. And it's, you know, a story is different than a line in a bio, right? I could tell you that, uh, you know, um, you know, Nate Schmidt, played his college hockey at minnesota okay that's a that's a line in his bio but if i tell you that nate schmidt while he was at minnesota not only was teammates with eric howla who was also on the golden knights but uh, that they were roommates and that at first nate couldn't stand howla who's from finland but wouldn't you know here they are <laughs> six years later and now they uh, they were for a time roommates here in Vegas before Nate got his house set up. So they were living together like it was old times, but Nate and Eric get along much better now than they had when they first lived together in, in 2010. So, but that's a story, you know, that is much more than just Nate Schmidt went to Minnesota. Um, you know, right. It's an old, uh, I think it's an Ian Forster line. There's a, uh, sequence of events. If I tell you the King died and the queen died, it's a sequence of events. But if I tell you the King died and the queen died of grief, now you're on to a story. Can you reach for that something extra to make it a story? That again, you don't often have time to provide all the details of a story that you'd like. So it ends up in maybe an inverted pyramid type of thing. You you offer a story in a way that is uh, at least intriguing to hook somebody in. You want to hear kind of what happens. You give them the story and then maybe you can add some more details with a few more layers. But it's a feel for the game. It's a feel for the pace at that moment and how important that story is. Is it a lighthearted story? Is it uh, something that will get you to chuckle and move on? Or is it a significant thing? Uh, you know, is it, um, you know, someone's, someone's mother has uh, just uh, had a, a horrible diagnosis from the doctor and the player is still in the lineup tonight. You know, those are things that you can't gloss over. So it, you, you try to take each moment on its own for what the story is, who the player is, what the moment is, and once in a while you get burned. Sometimes you're telling a story and there's a two-on-one breakaway and you have to just hit pause. That's the one thing you learn quickly is what's happening on the ice supersedes the story you might be telling. And if you have to stop yourself mid-sentence, you do so because people want to know what happens with the breakaway. You could get back to the story if it's important enough. Two more questions to end on uh, quickly. Uh, the first one is how do people follow you and or find Dan Duva if they want more Dan Duva? <laughs> sure. Uh, the broadcasts are on the NHL app. That's the easiest way to find 
any NHL radio broadcast, home or away, French or English, and even um, the uh, the Golden Knights are doing a few Spanish broadcasts. No, I am not doing the games in Spanish. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, you go to the NHL app, and on the top right, we've got the little headphones. It's very similar to the baseball app because MLB Advanced Media is now doing the NHL media as well. So it's very similar. And of course, pick the Golden Knights feed. Um, and the uh, the stations here in Vegas are uh, 98.9 FM and 1340 AM. There are uh, roughly a dozen stations in our radio network um, going through multiple states in the area, out to California, over to Utah, down to Arizona, and so on. Um, and we're looking to add more. Uh, to follow me, uh, Twitter is the place where I am, uh, I suppose, active, and that is uh, at Dan underscore Duva, D-A-N underscore D-U-V-A, and uh, you'll um, you'll find me there. I don't tweet as often as some broadcasters. I'm not one who tweets too often during games. Uh, I feel that other people have uh, more to say on Twitter than I do. I might provide some uh, answers to questions when people ask. I don't often ignore people. But I find that my forte is speaking extemporaneously on the radio rather than typing out thoughts limited to 140 characters. It's not to say that I don't tweet, uh, but it is it is uh, not as much as some other play by play guys who seem to do it as much as they talk. Um <laughs> <laughs> and the the no names um and, and the, uh, the the final thing i have for you is the the very first episode of this podcast carter blackburn uh told the story of when they had um i, I think it was bill raftery record the voicemail welcome on their voicemail when they were students in college <laughs> so like you'd call in and he would do the uh, you've reached mm -hmm. carter onions mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. so i wanted i wanted to give you the opportunity you're the only person i know other than carter that i've had on this podcast who has had similar interactions uh if we can go back to the cape league um mm -hmm. who were the who were mm -hmm. the, the people that you had uh welcoming you back from break oh well we had everybody uh from <laughs> uh you know jim nance and joe buck to uh gary cohen i mentioned bob wolf earlier what a treat that was um you know kenny main what are they thinking uh, when when a freshman in college or a senior in high school is like hey uh, yeah Jim, uh, yeah um you know most people were familiar with the cape league and the idea of somebody broadcasting it was sort of neat it was definitely new and you know we were kids so i guess they didn't want to blow us off um uh, and and it was really quite self-conscious uh on our part because you know we 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 wanted to establish like our credentials our legitimacy in broadcasting games in the Cape League. Nobody knew who we were, but if you had all these notable, famous broadcasters <laughs> saying our name, well, maybe that would kind of give us credibility. And yeah, we began our, our post-game show uh, every night with, uh, with Iron Eagle. That was, uh, that was a good one. But there's one voice, one voice that takes the cake, with apologies to all the great broadcasters who I just mentioned. There was one voice, and sadly, we have since lost him. But Legendary Yankee Stadium public address announcer Bob Shepard was our opening voice. And we had a highlight montage. And then you'd hear Mr. Shepard say, your attention, please. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Chatamay's Baseball with Guy Benson and Dan Duva. And, uh, 
and we had the uh, the Kill Bill uh, music there going, and I would come in and I would say, "Thank you, Bob Shepard," just to remind people who it was, and <laughs> I'd say uh, I uh, borrowed a phrase from Johnny Most, who would say, "High above courtside," I would say, "High above diamond side." at Veterans Field in Chatham or wherever we were. Uh, but that Bob Shepard one uh, was needed. And and while I was uh, in high school and college, I, I got to work with the Yes Network and um, got to know a lot of people that way. But to be in the old Yankee Stadium press box and to see Bob Shepard or even in the media dining room where Bob Shepard would sit with Eddie Layton, the longtime and now late organ player for the Yankees, the two of them, how much they had seen and, and what a personality and sense of humor Bob Shepard had. He, he'd grab you by the wrist and drag you into his booth because he perhaps feared he'd miss an announcement or something. <laughs> so <laughs> you saw him, you know, walking there, there, there'd be, there was a little uh, media concession stand where everything was a dollar at the old stadium. And uh, his booth was uh, just across the hall from there. And, and you might see him. And I remember bringing him a Chatham A's program and reminded him that Thurman Munson had played for the Chatham A's in 1967. And he thought that was neat. So I wanted to give him a program as a thank you for doing that voiceover for us. And he says, uh, anytime, anytime. Wait a minute. Not anytime. Talk to my agent. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, so uh, he, he's one that uh, of all the different announcers we got through the years, um, that was uh, that that is one clip that I will uh, I will hold on to. Uh, and I try to hold on to all of my broadcasts. I'm pretty uh, good about archiving stuff. I, uh, you know, I, I like to have for posterity. I don't know if anybody will ever listen to a lot of those old Chathamese broadcasts or anything else, but uh, I, I've got them. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Bob Shepard is the opening to uh, to the to the games uh, that we did for uh, for those uh, guy and I did the Chad Mays for four years together. Well, Dan, I'm uh, I, I started this in part because I'm horrible at keeping in touch with people and reaching out to folks, so this forces <laughs> me to do that. Um, yes. <laughs> so so uh, it was it was uh, it was good to talk to you, man. And uh, and uh, I mean, obviously you're doing well. So good to hear you're doing well, and uh, much success out to you and in, uh, in the desert. Oh, well, thank you very much. It, it's my pleasure. And uh, it, it's uh, the kind of thing that when we were in college and I, I was a couple of years ahead of you and uh, I remember, you know, Jason Benetti was a couple of years ahead of me mm -hmm. and how much uh, I learned from him at that point in time. And then the two of us were in Syracuse working together professionally, he with the Chiefs and me with the Syracuse Crunch hockey team. Um, and, you know, we got to uh, to teach at Newhouse and, and all that sort of stuff. And uh, you're right. It, it is hard to keep in touch with people, but you remember those formative years and the important things that you got out of them, whether it was a life lesson or a friendship, whatever it might be. And I think that of all the advice we might give aspiring broadcasters, yeah, the relationships, the, uh, the keeping in touch with people uh, does count for a lot. And even if you haven't been in touch with somebody in a while, that's OK. Um, you know, it's, it's usually not too hard to, to get back to way, the way things were, um, you know, if, if you do truly have a strong friendship. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that we still do, Joel. I'm, I'm looking forward to your next visit here to the desert. I don't know when it's taking me out there. That's not really... <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't gamble. I've got a couch, like, so that's well. I will say the, the amount of people that like I've got like I've got friends that are just like, hey, we're going to Vegas. You in? I'm like, oh, I know. I'm like, no, nothing good. <laughs> like, there's nothing good that follows that sentence. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think a lot more people will come here to visit me in Vegas in the first year than the last five years combined in Syracuse. <laughs> we, we have Tully's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, they've, they've, got, uh, they've got a couple things worth seeing here. Not to mention the newest addition to the strip is NHL hockey. That's Dan Duva here on Play by Playcast. Episode 71 is in the books. Many thanks, as always, for joining us here. Many thanks to Dan for taking the time to do this dan and i spent like two and a half hours on the phone by the way uh i recorded what you heard and and then some uh, and then we just we kept going afterwards so it was uh it was good to catch up with dan we hadn't spoken in a little while uh so hopefully you guys got out of that conversation what i got out of that conversation uh because it was a blast and uh I, i've said this a couple of times but one of one of my um favorite and more fun conversations that we've had here on the pod Next week is Ted Emmerich, our guest. If you're a Texas local, uh, you will know Ted Emmerich quite well. He is from the Dallas-Fort Worth area and has uh, risen to national prominence as well as a voice with Westwood One and uh, ESPN in recent seasons. So uh, you might know him from there as well. Ted Emmerich will be with us here on the podcast next week. Hopefully you can join us then. But we are out of time. We are very over time here on the pod today. So until next week, we say so long. This is Play by Play Cats, and we are out. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.